more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lisa Hildebrand. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU or interested in coming on the show, or you want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Miriam Lipton from the School of History, Philosophy, and Religion. Hi, Miriam. Hi. How's it going? Good. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, So broadly, Miriam, your research or your main focus is understanding how U.S. and Soviet scientists dealt with bacterial infections in real time during the Cold War correct? Yeah, for sure. Good, good kind of blanket summary. <laughs> yeah. Good elevator speech. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there, there are a lot of like different components to this research. And it's this fascinating intersection of science and history. And I, I, I feel like there may be some components or all components that may be sort of unfamiliar to some of our listeners. So let's kind of back up first and we're going to have a brief history lesson and then a brief science lesson. So let's let's start with the history. Can you give us like a brief yeah, a brief history lesson on the Cold War. What was that all about? Yeah, sure. So it's mostly a conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, after World War II, the once allies became enemies locked in uh, battles that never actually involved artillery, but involved sort of um, intellectual kinds of pursuits and a war over those kinds of things. And Mm. it lasted until the collapse of the Soviet Union when it was no longer a country Mm. and we couldn't be involved in a war with them anymore. And that was 1980, 1991. Like you said, artillery, no shooting, which right. would have been like a hot war. This was like cold. It was done kind of like. Right. So there would be kind of military-like aggressions that would happen. So the best examples, like the space race, mm-hmm. when the United States and the Soviet Union were in a arms race, but not really against uh, each other trying to see who would be the first to whatever the goal was. So to the moon, mm-hmm. into space, things like that. So it was never involving actual weapons, but it was in a war of sorts, mm-hmm. plus the Cold War. Right. So so that's kind of the the like the historical context, the time we find ourselves in. Yes. So 
you're looking at how U.S. and Soviet scientists dealt with bacterial infections. So let's let's talk a little bit about that, although I guess more the two kind of main methods that are available to fight bacterial infections. Yeah, so most people who are listening are probably from the United States and are familiar with antibiotics, and that's the main way that we treat bacterial infections now. But there's actually a different way that the Soviets used or treated bacterial infections, and that's bacteriophages. And bacteriophages are a kind of virus that eats bacteria. So like bacteria phage, phage means eat in Latin and bacteria. So it's like eats bacteria. So it's a virus. And then antibiotics, of course, are sort of chemical compounds that destroy bacteria. So they're both doing the same thing, but in different ways. And those are the two modalities of treating bacterial infections. And correct the science part on this, but the bacteriophages are much more precise in terms of what they're attacking, oh, right, the specific bacteria, but anti- antibiotics are a bit broader in their effect on the body. Yeah, exactly. So that, that, thank you for that. So the bacteriophages are really specific in what they'll treat. So there'll be a bacteriophage that treats uh, cholera, for example, or dysentery. And they are a virus that's basically honed in on that one disease, that one bacteria, and it's really effective at doing just that. Whereas antibiotics, so the, if you probably heard of like broad spectrum antibiotics, it just kind of generally kills bacteria. And they're not as targeted, but as a result, we get things like resistance, mm, which yes. is a, a growing hot topic today and something I'm interested in, in my research. Right. Which is actually something that um, that I, I thought about right before the interview, another question to ask you, but I think will maybe become more relevant once listeners know a little more about the differences in the research of or kind of applications of antibiotics and bacteriophages. But so I guess there's there's this like broad philosophy or maybe school of thought, maybe school isn't the right word, but just like thought that. Soviet science is is often or or was politically charged in that many times decisions in kind of science were made not due to the soundness of science, but because of politics. Um, Right. Yeah. 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 So there's this trope, I guess, in history, uh, people who study Soviet science that tend to think along these lines that Soviet science is really influenced by politics and not by the science itself. And there's a, a couple of examples that are really good about this, but one in particular is this guy, the Lysenkoism. And this man, it's named after Trofim Lysenko, who was an agronomist. Uh, he worked in agriculture, and he was seen as a very perfect kind of Soviet man because he wasn't rich. He was just a worker, and he kind of self-made himself and grew uh, successful in that way. And the Stalin really loved him for this. And his idea was essentially that you could create wheat that would be grown in cold weather, Mm. uh, even when it's actually a wheat that grows in warm weather. Mm -hmm. And he basically tried to force these wheats, these wheat to to like change itself, change its way of doing things, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of like Lamarckism. Which is a guy, I don't know if people are familiar with Lamarck, but he kind of believed that giraffes, for example, have long necks because they simply stretch their necks during their lifetimes. Mm, mm-hmm. And this was a kind of Lamarckism, is Lysenkoism. And he didn't believe in Men- Mendel, who is the kind of biology that we use, which is like DNA and things like that. And 
Stalin was so supportive of Lysenko, not because of his science, but because of the kind of man he represented for mm-hmm. the Soviets. And as a result, all uh, Mendel kind of biology was prohibited in the Soviet Union during this time. In wow. fact, the the main biologist who was a Mendelian, he was murdered. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so that kind of happened showed... a lot during Stalin's time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, par for the course. And mm. uh, as a result, it meant that this is—I mean, basically, this is an example that Soviet science. Uh, there are strands of Soviet science, at least, that are clearly um, influenced by the politics rather than the soundness of the science itself. Right. I wanted to jump in here with a question. Hi, everyone. I'm Grace. I'm a new. Uh, inspiration dissemination DJ in training. Woo-hoo. Hi, um, yeah. Hey, Chris. <laughs> Hi there, everyone. Um, so, Miriam, you said that bacteriophage uh, research was kind of really big in the Soviet Union, and you're kind of talking here about uh, the different ways that maybe the Soviet Union approached science and politics. Um, how does that relate to bacteriophages specifically? Did bacteriophage research originate in? The Soviet Union? Uh, that's a that's a really good question. So actually, bacteriophages have a outside of Soviet Union story, but were really championed in the Soviet Union. They were initially discovered in 1915 by a French researcher named Frederick Twort. And he sort of saw them, but didn't know what they were. He thought it was like an amoeba. But this other French guy, uh, Felix de Harel, he recognized them as they were. And he was the man who coined bacteriophages. Mm. He was really disenchanted with the state of the French, the uh, with French politics at that time, and really thought that the Soviet Union was kind of an ideal place to live. And he had a Soviet uh, Georgian born from the Republic of Georgia, not Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> he had a Georgian worker under him in his lab named George Oliva, and fr- uh, De Harel basically went to the Soviet Union with Oliva and kind of had this welcome with welcome arms to mass produce bacteriophages. And so even though it was sort of French derived, it was really embraced in the Soviet Union. Mm. And they built a huge complex that's still there today, in fact. And De Harel and Oliva had homes right next to each other, this like palatial mansion. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of crazy. Uh, But there were tensions within the Soviet Union and actually Oliva was murdered. Uh, in 1935, and then um, de fled to France. Mm-hmm. But 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 as a result of sort of that story aside, the bacteriophage kind of took hold in the Soviet Union and became a major way that people treated bacterial infections. Mm-hmm. Um, if I may, there's also another reason why it was because in the World War II, when antibiotics were a big thing uh, to treat bacterial infections uh, with the allies, so the United States and the Soviet Union, the United States actually withheld antibiotics from the Soviets. So they didn't have mm-hmm. it until very late in the war. And as a result, they didn't really have U.S. kind of manufacturing capabilities for antibiotics. So it was sort of bacteriophages or bust. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in this sense, uh, because of because of how the Cold War kind of inflected itself within science and uh, the Soviets had this you know possibility to work with bacteriophages and you know the uh, the the Western states were like, oh, we have these cool things called antibodies. You yeah. know, what, but because it's a zero sum game, this Cold War mentality. You know, the United States and all its allies were like, yo, those bacteriophages, that's all Soviet stuff. Don't believe that. So you have the splitting right. of kind of uh, scientific disciplines and how to treat bacterial infections, and then they begin to meet again. 
Yeah, so the basically they come back together again in the late 1960s when antibiotic resistance becomes a kind of worldwide known phenomenon. Mm. The WHO, the World Health Organization, holds uh, meetings about antibiotic resistance. So mm. it becomes a thing that the world stage is familiar with. And at that point, sort of the Soviets and the Americans are together fighting this antibiotic resistance kind of thing, world that mm-hmm. we're living in mm-hmm. now. But they definitely were deviating in those post-World War II to 1969 years. And that's what I'm really interested in my research is understanding what was happening during that time. Right. And I, I, I just want to kind of bring us back. Uh, the whole kind of backstory with Lysenkoism is... It, it's kind of not really known whether that applies to bacteriophages, right? Like whether, in fact, that was all just politically driven or actually there is very sound science. Well, actually, we, we do kind of know that there is sound science right. to back it up. But that's also part of what you're what you're interested in, in looking into. Yeah. So there's actually a really interesting case study that was that happened in, in 1960 that kind of is this twist on the the story that we hear today in the United States about antibiotics being like the greatest thing ever and can defeat everything. So in 1960 there was an outbreak of cholera in Afghanistan and the at that time a fairly new antibiotic had been developed called tetra uh, sorry teramycin which is also known as oxytetracycline and it was the first antibiotic developed by a pharmaceutical company Pfizer. They sent hundreds of people out to sort of source this product and they found it and it's this great antibiotic. So when the outbreak of cholera happened in 1960 in Afghanistan, the Afghan doctors treated their patients with antibiotics, teramycin, mm. and it seemed to be fairly ineffective because mm. the pandem- the epidemic wasn't being dealt with, handled. So, so people were still like yeah, dying, the, contracting it. Like, ev- yeah. yeah, every hospital bed in mm. the main hospital uh, was completely packed. Mm. There were people out on the streets that weren't getting treatment. It mm. was just chaos. Mm. And the the Afghans actually sent for help, requested help from the world. And one of the teams that came was a Soviet team, and it was led by the scientist named Plonkina. And she brought with her bacteriophages. Mm. But she was actually not allowed to treat the bacteriophage, like give the bacteriophages to the cholera patients because at, even at that point, they were still so convinced that the antibiotics were going to work. Mm-hmm. So Plankina was actually told that she could just treat the sort of non-cholera patients, the ones that were just sort of sick but not clear with cholera. Mm. And she was in the hospital and she figured, she realized that there were these patients that were being misidentified, just a handful of them. Uh, that didn't that were misidentified as not having cholera, but they actually did. And there's hmm. like a backstory behind that. But she realized that they did, and so she secretly treated these people with bacteriophages. Ah, yeah, and and not surprisingly, a drum roll. <laughs> they they were cured actually in three days. One person was comatose. He was basically going to die, and he was out of the hospital walking within three days. Wow. And then, as a result, the Afghan doctor said, "Please treat everyone with bacteriophages." Plankina did. Every single person was given bacteriophages. They tr- they went out everywhere in Afghanistan, gave everyone bacteriophages. They tracked it for over three years, and not a single person got cal- cholera. Wow. Yeah, and and they had cholera outbreaks up until that point, like every year. Mm-hmm. So it was a it was a pretty persistent problem mm-hmm. that was happening, and these people were not getting sick and didn't continue to get sick. Mm-hmm. So, so 
clearly soundness of science, bacteriophages work. Yeah. Very and, effective. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're still using bacteriophages today in the so in well, in the so former Soviet republics, especially in Georgia where mm-hmm. there was there still is a bacteriophage mm. research center. So d- despite this kind of like this incredible story, um, there is not like there there is this perception of bacteriophages in the US. Yeah. That is that they don't work right right it's it's still quite like negative yeah it's really negative um there's a lot of arguments that people make about why bacteriophages shouldn't be used in the united states Mm. some of them are that there's a monetary thing involved with them that they're hard to patent because bacteriophages are kind of everywhere Mm -hmm. you can go into water and you'll just scoop them out Mm. because they're viruses they're viruses yeah Yeah, they're they're everywhere so it's hard to patent that and so there's this argument that it's sort of a drug that we couldn't make profit off of and therefore can't regulate Mm. because the fda has to regulate our drugs there's also this idea that because they're a virus and we would inject them in ourselves willingly that they could kind of mutate. And then instead of affecting, let's say, the cholera bacteria, it could try to eat other things in our bodies and turn on us. Mm. So as a result of those kind of two factors, we in the United States don't use bacteriophage or at least scientists, naysayers would say that's why we don't use them and mm. don't want to use them. As a as a counterpoint, I think uh, the I think three Seven years ago, Monsanto recently won a suit that, like, hey, turns out they can patent uh, some biology. So, you know, I, I think the, the the argument of, oh, yeah, you know, be, because because it's a it's uh, viruses are kind of weird that they're, they're not really like an organism, in right? And way. are they alive or not yeah. alive? Yeah. yeah, but like nonetheless, <laughs> uh, some companies have done very well for themselves patenting. <laughs> yeah, I would <laughs> the, say Monsanto is doing pretty well for itself. It's doing pretty well for itself. Uh, for for listeners that want to know, want to read more about uh, what we discussed, in, uh, specifically with the, with the, with the cholera work, you actually wrote a, a piece in Science History, Bacteriophages in the Fight Against Cholera in Cold War Afghanistan, published October 19, 2021. Uh, we just tweeted that out on our um, on our. Twitter handle KBVR ID. You can find that. Yeah, great. On our, Thank on you. Our list. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good story. Yeah, uh, it's super great interesting. Great photos as well. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> well done. Yeah. Okay, so so bacteriophages clearly effective work. Yeah. Um, there's these arguments against them, which is kind of preventing or prohibiting their use in the U.S. Um, this is something that we didn't really, well, I guess we we sort of went into at the beginning of the interview, arguments against antibiotics. Obviously, we're we're dealing with this issue of antibacterial infection. Yeah. And so I'm I'm curious, I may be putting you on the spot here, so if you don't want to answer this, this is fine. <laughs> but do you think bacteriophages may be a better long-term solution given that we are seeing a lot of antibiotic resistance? Uh, yeah, I mean, personally, it's I don't want to put myself into the history, but I definitely think that bacteriophages are an uh, answer, a potential answer to this problem that we're con- see- that we're seeing today. And actually, to what you were saying, Adrian, that there's some things that are being patented that maybe we wouldn't traditionally patent. With bacteriophages, there's actually research being done in the United States on animals to use bacteriophages, because I guess we can do that to them, but... <laughs> Not to us. Uh, so so it, there is a, it could be an answer. The, the problem, of course, though, with bacteriophages is that it has to be so specialized. Mm. So you have to know what you have 
um, like if you have to know you have strep or something. Mm. So in the in Georgia, they have to sort of culture it and then figure out what they have and then give you. Mm. And they could also, but they could also give you a tailored cocktail, like a perfect bacteriophage for your bacterial infection. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I I think there are definitely pros to it, and they've been using it for whatever, 70 years now, 80 years with no person getting mutated and being mm. a sort of <laughs> being hybrid. A virus mutant. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So actually, as, a, as, a, as a brief aside, um, th- th- their continuing research in bacteriophages uh, and, and vaccines in general was uh, was one supposition as to why the Russians were very quickly able to make this Sputnik V vaccine. Yeah. Um, now, there's a lot of questions because uh, they weren't initially uh, peer-reviewed studies and they, they didn't get the data out. But like, you know, in, in the initial days of when the Pfizer Moderna uh, vaccines were, uh, when their data was released, Sputnik V was also released with like fairly similar efficacy data. Yeah, um, for sure. And it, the idea is that like because the Russians have, have been doing this kind of virus research yeah. for a super long time, more so than the Americans have been doing, yeah. um, like they were just more successful. It uh, could be. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't actually heard that argument. I know that they created that vaccine in record time with sort of out of the blue Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that could definitely be an answer. There's enormous history of using or virus viral research. Mm-hmm. Um, they also, yeah, viral research in general. I won't get into more about that. But yes, <laughs> <laughs> I have another. I have another question for you. So, in in Russia now, I, modern day Russia, are do you? This may be sort of out of your wheelhouse, but do you know? Is it more common to still be treated with bacteriophages there than antibiotics? So people still use bacteriophages but i would say that in like russia the country they're mm-hmm. probably using antibiotics now more okay. it's they're so ubiquitous everywhere around the world and i think this narrative of them being the answer mm. has pervaded to to russia has penetrated mm. there mm. but in georgia it's mm. really popular to still use bacteriophages especially because that was sort of the, the epicenter of bacteriophage research mm. within the soviet union mm. So I would say that's really where you see it. Hmm. And um, there was actually there. They have treated uh, one American there. That's the only American they've ever treated has been. There's been one American that's been treated at the bacteriophage center in Georgia. And uh, that's it. And he had to sort of fly there and do this whole thing. It's kind of crazy. Oh, he like he wasn't just in Georgia, no. got sick and needed to be treated. He specifically went, <laughs> went there, there to get treatment. Yeah, to get treatment. To yeah. get bacteriophage treatment. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Huh, fascinating. Yeah, so one person maybe we against can all... what do you do you know? Uh, I don't remember the. Okay. I th- it was some. I think it was MRSA, huh. but I could be mistaken. And he went there, and he he was treated. I mean, he was there for a long time. Mm. It took a long time to treat the infection, but he essentially sort of lost his leg to bacteria and oh, walked out of that hospital. Wow. Afterwards, yeah. Huh. So it was kind of incredible story for, for the people of Georgia. Not the U.S. state, but the country. Not Georgia. Uh, yeah. Republic of Georgia. Georgia yeah, Republic of Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. So for the Republic of Georgia, is it a sense of like patriotism and nationalism to like continue on on this beat because mm-hmm. because they were kind of the epicenter? Yeah, maybe there's in Georgia, they have a sort of a weird tension with Russia. Uh, they didn't like, like many countries do. Yeah, right. Like there's it's hard. The the Georgians don't really like speaking Russian. They were kind of forced to do so during the Soviet Union because mm-hmm. Russia was like the, the dominating republic. They mm-hmm. put their fingers in every single republic. And George, if you go to Georgia today, they do not want to speak Russian. Mm. They want to speak English with you, even if you speak Russian. And I think, 
maybe there is some pride. I mean, Aliva, the Georgian who was murdered, who kind of brought bacteriophages to the Soviet Union, he's Georgian and mm. a very famous Georgian, mm. I think, for them. Mm-hmm. So, wow. So let's let's we we've talked a lot, a lot about what you research, but not really how how you do it, like oh, how you yeah. conduct this research, right? Because the the whole point is is that I know we've been talking about a lot of this now in like modern times. What is the perception? But you're actually trying to get at how scientists in real time during the Cold War kind of thought about all this and approached bacterial infections yeah. and and how to study it. So so how. How do you do that? Well, so I'm doing my degree in history of science. So as a historian, I'm trying to look at uh, archives. And the biggest archival source that I'm using actually is going to be scientific, published scientific journal articles by Soviet scientists during this time. Mm-hmm. And I recently received a Linda Hall Fellowship, which is a archive suppository of all these Soviet medical journals. And I'll be, and I've been looking at them. Just started this past week, actually, Woo-hoo. for my fellowship. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to sort of read how they were writing about bacteriophages and antibiotics and resistance, sort of in real time, because we can assume that what they were writing is what they were thinking mm-hmm. about this issue. And um, I have sort of a U.S. analog that I've looked at because those are easily accessible, and it's kind of interesting how they were understanding resistance, like questions about. Did they even know it was a thing? Mm. Like, could they see it when it was happening? Penicillin was the best example of that, Mm -hmm. just because that was the first antibiotic. And um, the doc, some of the doctors, when they would see penicillin sort of not working, what we might call resistance, they would call it penicillin failure. And Mm. they would think things like the patient isn't receptive enough. Mm. Or we just didn't give enough penicillin. Mm. But they never really considered the idea that penicillin was the problem, Mm. that it was something else, because penicillin was so effective and they just didn't even (laughs) imagine that it wasn't going to work. It was like the cure-all. How can can you blame this amazing thing that was saving so many lives to be like, that's actually the problem. Right, yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting to see how how they kind of realize resistance was happening. Mm. And that's where I'm at. And, And bacterial infections were terrible before antibiotics <laughs> i mean yeah. just can you just, take us back to what would happen if you you know yeah so uh, actually the first person that was treated with penicillin it was too late but it was an off-duty cop in his rose garden nicked his finger on the roses and got a bacterial infection and died like he was in his 30s and that was it like Bacterial infections just just kill you just like that in wow. your garden from the thorn of a rose. From people, a, yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> can, yeah. can you remind me when penicillin was beginning to be much more widely used? Yeah, so it was discovered by Alexander Fleming in 1928. And the story, the fabled story, is that he was in his lab and he left a window open and with some mold, some bacteria. And the when he came back the next day, the bacterial mold was gone, mm. and realized that that was penicillin. So that was in 1928. He didn't actually have a lot of tools for mass manufacturing of antibiotics at that time, or of penicillin, what he had developed. And he recognized during World War II that there were a lot, well, there's a lot of factors that were happening, but basically during World War II, there was this push by, he was British, by him and his colleagues to come to the United States and ask the U.S. for help Mm. to mass manufacture Mm. penicillin because they just didn't have the capability. And in the United States, we did. So that's when penicillin became like the thing was in World War II. Mm. Even though it was developed in 1928, it wasn't really understood to be possible, like its uses, because 
it wasn't really able to make it in any way that made sense. Mm. And then we we mass manufactured it, and that's when it kind of took off. Mm. And how long after that was it that they started noticing this penicillin failure? And around what time did it was it starting to be referred to as antibiotic resistance? Yeah, so that's something I'm, I'm exploring. That's a great question, Grace. That's something mm. I'm exploring in my research. Um, I've looked at papers by, for example, Salman Waxman. He was the discoverer of streptomycin, which is the second antibiotic. Mm. He was in the United States, discovered it, and... I've read through his papers, and while he's sort of doing the tests on guinea pigs, there was what we would call resistance, but he never recognized it as much as such. So hmm. there was resistance from the get-go. Wow. <laughs> um, but but uh, yeah, he he didn't he didn't talk about it in those terms. It was sort of like this guinea pig. You know, didn't take it well, something oh. like that. It's a guinea pig's fault, absolutely. Yeah, yeah well, I, I mean, you also think about it. Like they, they're figuring out like the dosage, or does this even right. work? Right. So if guinea pigs are dying, it's kind of not that big a deal. Uh, and the promise of streptomycin was so huge because it was it treated tuberculosis, which was mm. a major killer. And for him, recognizing that this is a possible drug that could cure tuberculosis, uh, I don't think that. That's what I'm trying to explore. But did he recognize it as such and just sort of ignored it or didn't understand it? It's it's an interesting story. Um, but to your second point, sort of in the late 1960s is when you sort of start seeing uh, literature about antibiotic resistance. So in 1971, mm -hmm. I think, is the first World Health Organization committee where they meet like a summit to talk about antibiotic resistance. Mm. So I would say... He discovered streptomycin in early 1950s, so you've got maybe 20 years of antibiotics, uh, antibiotic resistance that was happening, but not being sort of formally recognized as such. Wow. So you just mentioned something that I want to really focus on. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned in the literature when you answered Grace's uh, second part of the question, and then you mentioned in the, in the first part of the question, I'm reading the papers when yeah, this was yeah. developed. And I want to key in on that because you are reading the scientific journal articles that um, I don't think Elsevier has, you know, a paywall at this point because it's like in a library or in a microfiche or something. Yeah. But you are actually reading these scientific papers, yeah. which I think brings your program, the history of science, and you in particular in a really unique position because you're a historian, but you also have a background in biology. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. So, so my, yeah. Well, so ahead. you're a historian, but also a scientist. So you're reading, yeah. you're reading the actual <laughs> papers. Yeah. Like with the, you know, it, with the actual data in there. Yeah, for sure. And you're bringing that into a historical context. But like a historian, no offense to historians, like <laughs> you probably don't know how to like interpret antibody teeters on a logarithmic scale. Like that's just a weird thing to do. Right. Yeah. And so that's why, yeah, history of science actually is a, is a specialized field of history. Mm -hmm. And there's very few programs in the United States that do history of science. So my degree will read history of science or historian of science at the end of it all. And it's super, super specialized. We're one of the only, if not only, program in the in the West Coast that does history of science. Wow. There's less than 10 probably in the, in the whole country of mm. this program. And, and you're a tiny program here at OSU. Yeah, we might be the smallest. I'm not sure. There's about four of us in the program. So, <laughs> I, I want to shout out to, to the rest of your cohort. Uh, you should come on the show because yeah. this is really cool. Is we want to know more about this. Yeah, it's a super, it's a super cool field for sure. But... Yeah, so it's it's 
I, I, I'm blown away that you're, you're, ba- yeah, you're, you're basically, you're two things. You're a scientist and you're a historian. Like where, what is the, be- like, how do you come to dovetail those two things <laughs> in this research? Like tell, yeah, tell us about your background because you've had quite the journey. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for asking. And I also would just want to sidetrack is to say that I also read the articles in Russian. The scientific articles oh in Russia. Oh my Russian. gosh! So we got it. We add Here that we little go. like snap, yeah, snap, wow. snap. Okay. Amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I did my undergrad at the University of Oregon, and I triple majored in biology, general science, and then Russian studies. Triple majored, everybody. <laughs> and I and I minored in chemistry. Wowie. Yeah. Uh, and so I so I have the STEM background, but just really, really wanted to keep studying Russian. It mm. just was like this passion for me, and so I did a master's at the University of Oregon in Russian. Russian studies. And there I did my research on sort of Soviet medical history. No surprise. (laughs) I did contraceptive acceptance and sexual education during the Soviet period. And I realized during that time that I just sort of didn't have enough data science background. Like I couldn't sort of look at the numbers and do qualitative or quantitative data. Mm. And I decided to get another master's degree. So this was a master's of science Mm -hmm. at Georgetown, which in in global health, which is like public health, but I had to do, um, it's more science, like more quantitative data, Mm. which is Mm -hmm. exactly what I wanted. And it was a really cool experience. And I got to, from there, go work at the World Health Organization, which was awesome. No big deal. No, no, no biggie. <laughs> uh, but I realized that science, history, history of science was still like my passion because I was doing this research uh, in the WHO and recognized that I was really interested in sort of how we got to where we were. Mm. And these problems have a, an origin story. Mm. And that's when I decided that history of science was really what I wanted to do. When and, did you, is that the time that you like found out that history of science was a degree? Because I had never, I mean, it sounds maybe stupid, but I'd never heard of this as a degree, but I just assumed that like it was like historians studying a time period, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I guess I'm not sure when I found, when I heard about history of science, it, it, it must have been probably around that time mm. and just realized that this is, certainly when I heard it, I knew it was for me. Mm. Like that was, that was definitely what I want to do. And and you can't do a PhD if you're not really passionate about it. It has to be a passion project, I feel like. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And this is super fun for me. This is what I needed to do. Yeah. Wow. And so, and, and that's when you, I mean, yeah, it must've kind of been a small selection if there's not that many programs. Yeah. Um, And, and this, this program worked well. Like I said, I did my undergrad at the University of Oregon. I have family here in Oregon. I'm not originally from Oregon, but I've have roots here and this just made a lot of sense. This mm, was a good program for me. mm. Um, there's, there's one other little kind of tidbit in your background that is super interesting (laughs) to like, just because of where you are now, I, you know, I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. I, I do. I do. I think it's sort of how I got into this topic of doing the research that I'm doing mm-hmm. in particular. And when I went to Georgetown, I had to take a tuberculosis test, as most people do when they go into school, and I tested positive. And then I found out that I actually not just had exposure, but was had a latent TB, which is tuberculosis. Like I had TB mm-hmm. and I had to take antibiotics for over a year. It uh, turned every clear liquid in my body orange. Wow. <laughs> so my tears, <laughs> saliva, you you name it. Oh my are, gosh. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> what color was that? Orange. <laughs> that's disconcerting. Well, that's, maybe that's why I chose uh, Oregon State. 
And uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I I had to be on antibiotics for over a year. It was it was really really t- trying. It was hard on my GI system, mm. and yeah. I sort of ha- you have to do a history when you when you get diagnosed with tuberculosis mm. in the United States because they need to know how you got mm-hmm. it. And I realized that I had gotten it back in Russia about 10 years prior. Wow. The first time I went to Russia. Yeah, my, my host mother was, I didn't know the signs at the time, but mm. she was obviously had active, full-blown tuberculosis, was mm-hmm. very, very sweaty all the time, always coughing, very weak. And to get tuberculosis, you have to have long, prolonged exposure with someone who is active mm. tuberculosis. Mm. And you said it's 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 not like something like one person coughs in a train once passing you by and then you get it. Yeah. Yeah. So like if someone basically three things can happen to you if someone has active tuberculosis and they cough on you. So if they cough on you with active TB, most likely what's going to happen is you are just a normal, healthy person with a robust immune system and you just fight it off. No Mm. problem. You may test positive on that skin test, the man two that Mm. most people are familiar with. But that's about it. Uh, then there's the two other things that can happen to you. So one is someone's coughing on you for a long extended period of time or you're very, very, very ill already mm. and your body can't fight off the bacteria that's coming into you and you you also develop full-blown tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. The third option is what what I got, which is called latent tuberculosis, and you get so much tuberculosis that your body can't fight it off but also has the ability to like sort of encapsulate it. Mm. So you have the tuberculosis still in your body, but it's just kind of being walled off. And my public health nurse that I had to see for my tuberculosis every week to get my drugs, uh, she sort of equated it to the hard shell on an M&M. That is relatable. (laughs) Yes, the tuberculosis (laughs) is the chocolate on the inside and you're the hard shell. So I, the problem with having latent tuberculosis, of course, is that like you could get sick, get old, have COVID, anything can happen to you and your defense system can't sort of keep that chocolate coating Mm. and you can get active tuberculosis. So it can switch at any point. So having latent TB is like no joke. Mm. Like I had to get treated. Mm. And But luckily somehow in those 10 years that you had latent TB, like you didn't have another like serious illness to make it active TB. Right, yeah. But, But the problem is, is that like because of antibiotic resistance, uh, we don't know what kind of tuberculosis I was infected with. Oh. So I could have been infected with uh, XDR, which is extreme drug resistant, or MDR, which is multi-drug resistant tuberculosis. And without sort of testing that person's tuberculosis, which she's probably passed from mm. tuberculosis at this point, mm. uh, I will never know what kind of tuberculosis I have until I'm active. Wow. So they just treat me with frontline rifampin, which is a just a kind of your first level tuberculosis drug at this point mm-hmm. and the problem of course the scary thing is is we don't know if all if if it killed it mm. and we'll never know and i forever have to tell people like if i get sick i have to tell people that i had tuberculosis mm. because it could be tuberculosis wow and well yeah it's it's kind of it's really scary and you can't yeah you you then can't test for it because yeah you explained this to us in the pre-interview but i can't yeah so when you so like i said every person who's been sort of exposed to tuberculosis will test positive on that man too and Mm -hmm. and that's the skin test and actually every time after that your arm gets bigger and bigger so when i went to georgetown they had done it and my arm was huge i Mm. mean it was like a balloon it was so so big (laughs) <laughs> it was giant. They're like, whoa. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so then there's a second test that they do, which is a blood test, which is quantiferon, and it tests for antibodies. Mm. 
Uh, but having had tuberculosis or having tuberculosis now, you still test positive. Mm. So I will forever test positive on right. that test. And there's no way to discern whether or not I have latent or it's gone at this point. So the only way will be if I somehow get active tuberculosis. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. Knock yeah, on wood, yeah. yeah. So it's it's a scary thing. And you'll see a lot of people, actually, the public health nurse was telling me that a lot of people today she sees are older people who have like sort of transitioned from latent to active mm. who are just old or they get the flu or something and they didn't know in their youth because mm. it was a really common disease before mm-hmm. streptomycin by Selman Waxman. Yeah. So <laughs> for antibiotics is super common. It's still common today outside of the United States, but and in Russia, mm. it's a very, very common di- uh, disease in Russia, actually. Wow. Yeah. You know, I imagine for many graduate students, as they get to the tail end or, you know, mid mid time of their PhD, they inevitably get burnt out in some way, shape or yeah. form. But I, I, I do wonder, because you had this very personal experience of, you know, having TB, being, you know, uh, exposed, treated with antibiotics for like a year, having all of these consequences and then reading the papers in Russian, science <laughs> Russian papers yeah. of like what what they were testing out as an alternative to antibiotics, does that give you additional drive to kind of keep pressing along? Yeah, definitely, and for sure. And I think that also the fact that this is something that we can relate to today, because I think a lot of historians kind of, which is is good to be stuck in the past because that's what we do, Mm. but I'm really interested in how to kind of take what I'm studying and give it to people Mm. and sort of this is important because, and I think my research is really important because antibiotic resistance is a real thing Mm -hmm. that's affecting everyone. Mm. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, it's it's we're going to be in a post antibiotic world at some point. And Mm -hmm. so we have to come up with solutions. And I think that understanding the history of it, and that's I really, truly believe this will help us move forward. You know, the story about the Soviets in the United States, the Americans and the Soviets not wanting to sort of come together on this issue and being kind of siloed Mm. because of political reasons, maybe is a lesson that maybe we shouldn't do that next time or in the future. So I I definitely I don't. I don't see myself getting burnt out. It's so exciting. Yeah. And you've got a couple like hopefully exciting trips coming up. You you there you have like a couple of grants to you mentioned the Linda Hall archive, but you actually have a number of other fellowships or grants to like go to all these different places to yeah. look at their archives kind of on hold because of COVID. But yeah. Yeah, the humanities is awesome uh, because they give us money to go places and read their stuff. That's so cool. Yeah, it's really, really cool. So Science I does not do that. Yeah, yeah. So the Linda Hall Archive in Kansas City, Missouri, like I said, has a lot of Soviet journals. There's a Institute of Pharmacy Pharmacology in Madison, Wisconsin, and so I got I applied for a grant and I have money to go there. So when COVID travel sort of allows me to do it, I'll go there and look at their archives and they have a lot of sort of trade publications of antibiotics and I'm interested in kind of seeing how antibiotics were advertised Mm. and talked about during that time because that will kind of help get the context of the mindset Mm -hmm. of maybe researchers and physicians when they're treating antibiotics. And then I also have a grant to go to Caltech uh, in California, Southern California, because that's one of the two sort of main places where bacteriophage research was being done in the United States. Mm. It wasn't being done to study it for humans, but just sort of understanding the viruses themselves. And so they have the papers of these kind of bacteriophage scientists at Caltech, Mm. their correspondence, their notes, their scientific papers. And so that's what I'm going to go to Caltech and kind of look at and see what were U.S. bacteriophage scientists talking about and thinking Mm. about. How are they looking at it? 
I'd be really interested to see if they were looking at it as sort of an answer or Mm. as um, a cure to something. Or is it just sort of this kind of interesting and weird Mm. thing? Because my understanding is a lot of U.S. scientists now kind of, they're kind of like, it's just a side project, maybe. And just like a kind of (laughs) a crazy thing. Yeah. And and you have another trip to uh, Tbilisi in Georgia, right? Yeah, I'm hoping. Yeah, I I, I received another grant to go to Tbilisi to the Aliva Institute in Georgia. And that's definitely on hold right now because of COVID. Yeah. And I would love to also take that money and go to Russia. That would be the best. But at the moment, Russia is very, very off limits to the United States or for Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. (laughs) But it's great to be able to have this opportunity to do that. And kind of a perk of the humanities yeah for sure well i i think we're coming to the end of our show here uh I, unfortunately I to, this has been so fascinating yes. Thanks, <laughs> is, I, I want to make another plug for yeah. the rest of your cohort to come on to come on the show because uh you know we 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 more often have, you know, the, the quote unquote hard science folks, right. but I have the most fun, sorry to the hard science folks, <laughs> I have the most fun speaking to the psychologists and the social scientists and, and, and the his, his history people. So uh, I would love to have more of you on the show. Yeah. Uh, I was but, about to say humanitarians. No, that's not the word for people who study humanities, is it? Uh, you know, I guess I, I don't know. <laughs> Um, <laughs> practitioners of the let's call ourselves practitioners of the humanities, and you've actually had one of my co my colleagues here before, so you can listen to hers, Amy Heisey. She did a talk with you guys earlier, but yes. there's two more left. So we'll tweet out those links yeah, on, half, yeah. on on our Twitter page as well to make sure uh, we can find those again because I think that was a couple years ago. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, but even a couple years ago, we still had two traditions that we will uh, bring back. The first tradition is that we ask you for. Advice, advice to your past self, advice to other undergraduates who want to follow in your footsteps. Uh, what advice do you have? Uh, my, my advice is to future graduate students that there's really no prescribed path on what you should do. If my story is testament to that and just sort of do what you love and things will happen in a way that makes a lot of sense and will be fulfilling. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, yes, definitely your journey is a clear, yeah, perfect kind of description of that yeah (laughs) um and our second tradition is that you get to pick your outro song the song that we play play at the end and i think i think adrian has your first pick so um do you want it to be a surprise do you want to provide some background or why uh, you picked it it's called yeah sure it's called everything has changed by best coast and it's just an awesome song about sort of self-transformation and how there's sort of light at the end of the tunnel when things kind of look down now it can be super awesome eventually and it will be that is and, such a great note to end on on this very chilly evening yes. in Core Vegas. Yes. <laughs> and with that, we say das Vidanya. Da, das Vidanya, papa. Well, thank you so much for coming on the da, show. Da. And uh, we'll be here next Sunday as well. Enjoy. Das Korva. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Haman. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. 
This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.